All right, well, last week we introduced the book of 1 Timothy. We talked about the relationship between Paul and Timothy. We talked about some of the subjects that would be covered in this book. And uh, I have heard that I went a little fast last week. <laughs> so that was just a flyover to get us an introduction to the book. So now we're going to slow down and dig in. And we're going to start in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. Guys, this is a pastoral epistle. We talked about that last week. And so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, uh, Paul wrote these to pastors and to churches to tell them how we're supposed to do what we come together to do. Timothy was a new pastor in a struggling church. And that sounds kind of like us, doesn't it? So I think this advice is pertinent. Probably the first thing he tells Timothy is important. So let's see what it is. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." Now, of all the advice that Paul could have given to a new pastor and a struggling church, Paul thought the first thing to address is this, guard the gospel. Believers who are mature in the faith must understand that the purity of the gospel is of paramount importance. You can build a big and successful gathering of people without the gospel or without getting the gospel right. If you don't believe me, just look at Joel Osteen. But a church must have the gospel right and then protect it from false teachers. False teachers come in a lot of varieties and always have. You have your big, shiny, easy-to-spot false teachers like Osteen, Copeland, and other TV guys. And there are some great guys on TV, by the way, but there are also a lot of false teachers out there. But then you also have much more subtle types teaching false things who teach easy believism and they end up inoculating people against the genuine gospel. The real gospel, when it's replaced with a different gospel, is deadly to the souls of men and women. And the closer you get to the real gospel and still pervert it, the more easy it is for people who have a little bit of knowledge to believe it. So we have to be watchful and guard against both of these. 
I can tell you a gospel that requires no repentance and does not require the lordship of Christ is not the genuine gospel. When Jesus <laughs> talked to people, he didn't ever say, well, you come to me on your terms. He demanded repentance and submission. Now, guys, that's, uh, that's just the truth. When folks came to him, he said, count the cost before you commit to this. Tim Challies wrote a helpful article identifying some different types of false teachers in the church today. First is the heretic. Now, this is a person who blatantly contradicts essential Christian doctrines. Uh, we need to reserve the word heretic for people who go against essential Christian doctrines, not somebody that doesn't happen to agree with everything with us. Heretics are those who deny the basics of the gospel. They deny the Trinity. For instance, Oneness Pentecostals would be in that group. Uh, they deny the virgin birth or the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And many of our mainline denominations have fallen into that heresy. Um, they may alter the Word of God, like you'll see with Jehovah's Witnesses. They may add to the Word of God, like you see in the Mormon church. If you're thinking that you know a Oneness Pentecostal or, um, or a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, and they're really nice, sincere people, I don't doubt that at all. I'm sure they are nice, sincere people. The problem is they are sincerely believing something that takes them away from the true gospel. So if you love them, share the gospel with them. Now, number two, we got the heretic. Number two, we got the charlatan. And this is the guy or gal, who uses the gospel as a source of personal income. You know, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, these guys that get up and say, hey, send me your money and God will bless you. Well, God will bless them, I guess, because, you know, they get a lot of money. But actually, that's not God blessing them. So they say, send me money and you'll receive a blessing. These guys have been around for a long time. They were in the church that we're currently reading about. And you're going to see that when we get to chapter 6. I mentioned it last week in our flyover. The next one is the prophet. And this is the person who claims to get new revelation outside of Scripture. Be very careful, guys, when you say, God told me to do so-and-so. If it's in the Bible, I can say confidently that God told me to bring the message of salvation to people who need it. I can say that. I can say, God told me to repent of my sins. I can say those things because I find them in Scripture. We had a uh, director of missions in North Mississippi when I was there who came to our church. Uh, I was at my first church. And he told us this long story about how God had told him all these different things. And when he left, I thought, this has, this has done some serious harm because there are people in here who think maybe our director of missions is crazy and hears voices, or maybe God talks to him, but he doesn't talk to me. Why does God talk to this guy and he won't talk to me? Does God not love me enough? Does, does God not love me as much as he loves this guy? Uh, is there something special about this guy where God actually speaks to him and, and he's never spoken to me? And so that, that can do harm to people who listen to that kind of talk because you can say, well, God speaks to me through the word, but he's never spoken to me outside of the word. I mean, yeah, God speaks through the church. 
I mean, when we assemble the wisdom that we have here, I believe God speaks through that. I believe He speaks through His Spirit to the individual believer. But to make a claim like God told me so and so, and it was louder than any audible voice. Have you ever heard that? I think that makes some of us feel like, well, He didn't talk to me that way. I wonder what's wrong with me. And the other thing is, when you say God has told me thus and such, that is a really good way for a pastor to manipulate his people. If I came to you and said, God told me so and so, then you've either got to say, the pastor's a liar, if you don't want to do it. You've either got to say, well, the pastor's a liar, or I'm just going to rebel against what God said, right? And so that's a way for pastors to manipulate people is to say, hey, God has told me we need to do this, so you need to get in line and do what God has told you to do. So we need to be very careful about claiming to have knowledge from the Lord that is outside of Scripture. The next kind of false teacher is the abuser. And we see that kind of thing with, you know, there'll be a compound of people that live somewhere and he'll, he'll have his 15 wives in the compound. We realize that he's using religion to abuse these people. But also, unfortunately, we know that abuse goes on in doctrinally sound places. Now, these people aren't believing and practicing their doctrine, obviously, or they wouldn't be doing it. But, um, you know, there's a report that came out a couple of years ago about abuse in Southern Baptist churches among pastors and deacons and youth workers toward vulnerable people in their church. So those abusers are a kind of false teacher. And the last one I want to talk about is the ear tickler. And they're the guys that never, ever step on anybody's toes. They tell you how great you are, how much God loves you, regardless of anything else, uh, how happy he is with you. And the Lord does love you if you're saved. And he, is delight, he does delight in you if you're saved. But they won't call people to repentance because they know that's sort of an unpleasant subject. We have to stay away from all these folks. And I sometimes hear people say that some of the teaching of, fill in the blank with a false teacher, some of their teaching is good, so let's, let's use that part. Well, if I said, I'm going to make you a lovely cup of tea, and I'm just going to put a little bit of poison in it, you probably wouldn't want to drink it, right? So we need to stay away from false teachers and guard the gospel. Now, let's look now at how not to use God's law. One way is we must not add to the law's demands. Allow me to read a quote from uh, Exalting Jesus in First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's a series, and the authors were David Platt, Danny Aiken, and Tony Morita. It says, in verse 4, Paul talked about the myths and genealogies taught by the false teachers. These false teachers were taking extra-biblical writings that included stories and myths about different Old Testament figures, and they were using these writings to add to the Word of God. When we get to chapter 4, we'll see that they were teaching that you shouldn't get married and that you should abstain from various foods. In essence, they were putting rules and regulations on God's people that are not in God's Word. That's the end of the quote. Jesus had some very, very harsh words for the Jewish leaders that were adding to Scripture and putting heavy burdens on the people. And, and Jesus would say, hey, you're, you're laying heavy burdens on these people, and you're not willing to carry those burdens. Now, the Jews built fences around the law to make sure that they didn't transgress the law. Now, that sounds noble, doesn't it? I mean, if, if you don't want to do something 
then don't do the thing that leads to it and, and make sure that you never transgress the law of God. That sounds like a good idea. But that's how they ended up with all these little silly rules about, you know, you can only take this many steps on the Sabbath lest you're going on a journey and you can't, um, you know, you can't take a piece of wheat and, and rub it and eat the, eat the contents because that's work. You're threshing on the, on the Sabbath. And so they made all these fences around the law. And we do that too, you know. I've gotten in trouble before saying this, and I'm probably going to get in trouble again saying this, but here goes. All right. We, Southern Baptists, build a fence around the law too. Uh, the most notable place is with alcohol. Now, God says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. God says, don't be drunk. We should never, ever be drunk. We should be filled with the Holy Spirit. The problem is, a lot of Baptists say, never, 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 never touch alcohol. And that's a fence around the law. If your personal conviction is to never drink, especially in light of 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul talks about meat sacrificed to idols, and he says... Hey, I know an idol is nothing. An idol is a piece of wood or a piece of metal. And so if a Christian says, this idol is not really a thing, uh, it's just in the imagination of people, I'm going to take this discounted meat, be a good steward of the resources God has given me, and I'm going to eat this stuff. Paul says, I get that. But if it will cause a brother to stumble, you limit your freedom for the sake of your brother. And so if you use that argument to say, I'm never going to touch alcohol, then you are thinking in a godly way, and I applaud you. The problem would be, is if we impose our fence around other people. The law of God is binding on every single believer, but your fence is not. Now, you will not see me in a restaurant drinking alcohol, because I would not want to lead any believer astray. But if I saw you drinking in moderation, not becoming drunk, if I saw you eating a steak and you had a glass of red wine there, I wouldn't condemn you. I wouldn't worry about you. I wouldn't have a second thought about it. Because that's not the law. That's a fence around the law. Now, I'm not encouraging anyone to drink. <laughs> I am encouraging you to keep your fence around the law to yourself. And I really hope that you see the difference. Otherwise, I'm going to get fussed at a deacon fussed at me the first time that I said this. And he came up to me and he said, I know you said what the Bible says, but... And I said, hang on. Are you really going to finish that sentence? <laughs> so if you don't like what I said, you come fuss at me. But don't tell me, I know you said what the Bible says, but... Because I won't, I won't listen after that. You do not have the freedom or the wisdom to add to the law of God. And I surely don't either. Now, the second thing is, we must not think that the law saves. That is a perversion of the use of the law. A lot of people who attend church fairly regularly think that the gospel says, God's good, you're bad, do better. That is not the gospel. I've asked a lot of people, a lot of people over the years, if they say, I would go to heaven if I die, I say, why? And almost everybody, the overwhelming majority of people, say, because I've been good, or some version of that. One girl uh, told me, because I'm an animal rights activist. I didn't know what to do with that. 
But they tell me they've been good. They've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. They've tried to be nice to people. They haven't done anything horrible. And after all, Hitler was way worse than they are. That's their reasoning on why they'll go to heaven. I've shared with multiple members of our church who have told me that. And I've, I've let you know that. We hear a lot about quid pro quo these days in the news. And uh, I guess everybody now knows what that means. It means a favor or advantage granted or expected in return for something. Now, that's a long dictionary kind of definition. What it means is something for something. And that's how the world system works, right? If, I, if Jimmy has a widget and I want to buy the widget, I give him money and he gives me a widget, right? Something for something. That's how, how we operate. That's how we naturally think. If you want a paycheck, you go to work. Well, that's how it should be anyway. <laughs> not, not always how it is. But unless you've already earned your paychecks and you're living on, uh, on retirement, on investments, then what you need to do if you want money is go do something productive and they'll give you money. Now, I understand that's how we're programmed to think, but we have to take the word of God and let it show us that God's grace is available to us. And grace is not something that we earn or deserve through obeying the law. I mean, obeying the law is what we're supposed to do, right? So how could it be that we're added merit to us because we do just what we're supposed to do? And then we can't even do that. So we cannot be justified by the law. Salvation does not work on the world's system of quid pro quo, but most people think that it does. They think if we obey the law, we'll get God's favor. That is something for something. We must not misuse the law and teach that through obedience to the law, we can earn our salvation. So we saw that how not to use God's law is we must not add to the law's demands. We must not think the law saves And the next thing is, the wrong use of the law produces arrogance and ignorance among those who teach. Verse 7 in our text says, Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. When a person starts teaching in the church, his or her own wisdom divorced from the word of God, then that church is in serious, serious trouble. We need to be wise enough to know the well-delivered message is not the same as a true and God-ordained message. You could get a thoroughly competent actor. You get a really good actor and you give him a script and he could deliver a message way better than I could, way more passionately. But that doesn't mean the message would be true. The content of the message is what we have to look at. We have to see if... The word of God is being explained. Great delivery is wonderful, but we need to deliver the truth greatly. Another wrong use, a product of the wrong use of the law is that confusion and deception happens among the people who hear. It produces stuff like what we read in verses 4 and 6. Verse 4 says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So these guys are, are, instead of worrying about the gospel, they were worrying about these old stories about Old Testament figures, and then they were worrying about genealogies of those people. And so they were getting into a bunch of nonsense when they should have been focusing on the gospel. And that's what 
error in teaching will do. It will lead you away from the gospel to speculation on things that don't matter. Verse 6 says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So guys, if we don't stay focused on the Word of God, then we have wandered into vain discussion. Now we talked about how not to use God's law. Let's talk about how to properly use God's law. The first thing is to reveal the character of God. We learn a lot about God by what He says is good. Also, God is the only one with the wisdom or the authority to tell us what is good. Paul lists a few sins here in verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, Now, if we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, okay, the law is good if it is used lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Now let's look at this list of the unholy and profane. Let's look at this list of sins that he's talking about. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now guys, our society is okay with condemning most of these, but when you get to the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality, if you condemn those actions, you are a hateful, bigoted, and completely out of step with society kind of person. Now, it's going to get harder and harder to tell the truth from Scripture. Those of us who belong to Christ have to agree with God rather than the world, no matter what the cost is. Now, a guy who was running for the President of the United States said that if he had his way, it would cost us our tax-exempt status for me saying what I just said. Let me assure you that it's only the beginning. Things are going to get a lot worse unless God brings an unprecedented revival. He may. He can. If we pray for it and we work for it, he just might. The next thing that the law of God is beneficial and rightly used to do is it shows God's condemnation of the sinner. You know, when our, when our friends were here um, for that COMPEL conference, the Hearts for the Lost Folks, they showed us an approach that uses the law of God to shut the mouth of the sinner. It goes around the defenses of the intellect. Not that the intellect doesn't need to be dealt with. I was sharing in Sunday school this morning that I was, uh, I was saved, I believe, when I was in the sixth grade. But when I got to college, I majored in biology, thinking it might be a good way to make money. And I majored in music because I loved it and was, had some proclivity at it. Well, in every single biology class, I was in just taught everything centered around the worldview of Darwinian evolution. Every class, every history class, as a matter of fact, centered with that premise. And so I was, I've done the intellectual battling, right? I never went, hey, my mama told me this is true, therefore it's true. No, I was, uh, you know, I had to confront a lot of questions. I had to wrestle through a lot of things. I've been uh, exposed to various different streams of Orthodox Christianity 
and I've had to wrestle with scripture and get to where I am now through that. And so the intellect is great and the intellect should be involved. But when we're witnessing, when we're first telling people you've got a problem, the effective way to tell them that is to show them the law. And if we show them the law, they realize very quickly that they have transgressed the law. And when they realize there's a holy God and I am a sinner, they know they've got a problem. Now, folks, if you are healthy, you would be out of your mind to take chemotherapy. Chemotherapy makes you miserable, makes you sick. But if you know you have a deadly disease, you might be willing to take it, right? And so if we don't show the sinner that he has a horrible disease, he's not going to understand the precious nature of the gospel. But when the law shows them, I am a sinner and I need a savior, then we can show them what God's grace is about. Thirdly, God's law should show God's will for the saved. Because God's character is displayed through his law, then this shows the believer how to become more godly through observing these laws. Now, we're not talking about dietary or ceremonial laws. If you, uh, if you want to go home this afternoon and eat pork loin for lunch, you can do that. But you can't kill your neighbor, right? So we understand the difference. They're the ceremonial laws that were done away with in the New Testament. Um, you know, Peter had a vision where God said, hey, you can eat this stuff. And I'm grateful for that vision because I like pork loin myself. So, but the moral laws reflect the nature of God's character and those we need to adhere to. Why? Because we'll be saved? Absolutely not. Because we are saved and we want to please our master. Wrong use of the law is thinking that it saves. Right use of the law is observing it as a result and not a cause of salvation. Now, I hope that doesn't seem like a small difference to you. If you grab a shotgun and pull the trigger, it matters a lot which end you're holding away from you and which end you're holding toward you, right? The law can't save, but once we are saved by one who did keep the law perfectly, once we're saved, we can then begin to obey the law in order to conform ourselves to the image of Christ. Right use of the law produces responsibility among those who teach. Teaching needs to be driven by Scripture. Um, it does not need to be driven by other things and then ornamented with Scripture so that it sounds a little more preachy or a little more sermony, right? That is not the proper use of the law, not the proper use of God's Word in general. We need to be sure that we know the difference and that we only settle for the genuine article. So right use of the law also produces love among the hearers. Verse 5 says the aim of our charge. Okay, the aim, the goal, the point. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That is what faithful biblical preaching should produce over time. Now guys, I know that Southern Baptist churches have a, a poor history of maintaining pastors. Um, that is to our shame. Now, sometimes, I'm not saying you should stay if God moves you. I've, before I entered the ministry, I would hear people say, God is moving me here. I thought that translated to, I got a job offer with more money at a bigger church. That's all I thought it meant. 
since being in the ministry, I've learned very different. When God decides to move you, it's kind of like you're along for the ride, okay? So I'm not criticizing any individual for ever moving from one ministry context to another because it may very well be that God moved them. But it's better for a church when a guy will stick around for a while. You know, um, I, I, was, I grew up at Bellevue. Bellevue was in the image of Adrian Rogers after a while. There were faithful people who knew their Bible because that pastor had been there for a while. Uh, I have a friend, dear friend, who is coming here to preach to us in January. His name is Mark Webb. He pastored a church for 30 years. And I'm telling you, that church, I would go in there and people would say, hey, have you read this book by A.W. Pink? And I would say, why, no, I haven't, but who are you? Uh, They were deep. They were deep in their theology. They knew what they believed. They knew why they believed it. And they were rich in their conversation with one another. So biblical preaching will produce biblical people if it's done over an extended amount of time and if those people will get into the word themselves. So we've seen today that there are wrong uses of the law and right uses of the law. So what do we do? We guard the gospel above everything else. We reject false teachers, and we use the law rightly, realizing that it cannot save us, but that it can show us our need for a Savior. And then, after we're saved, it can show us how to live as disciples of Christ. The law shows us that we fall short of the perfection that God commands. And when we realize that, then we have to see what God will do to fix it. We can't fix it. Guys, if, if breaking the law could be remedied by keeping the law, then people wouldn't get in trouble, right? If I killed my neighbor, but then I could say, hey, you got to forgive me for killing my neighbor because I didn't speed on the way to work today. That's not how it works. <laughs> You're guilty of the things you transgress. You're guilty of the things that you break the law. And so once we've broken the law... There's no kind of obedience to other laws that can get us back in a right relationship. So when we've rebelled against God, when we have shaken our little puny fists in his face and said, we're not going to do what you say, then there's no way for us to make that right. God had to make that right. And what he did was he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, who we're going to celebrate even a little extra in this Christmas season. We celebrate him every time we get together. He lived that perfect life. He obeyed the law. We didn't. We couldn't. To tell you the truth, we didn't want to. So we rebelled. We didn't do it. He did. Now the amazing thing is God will take his obedience and credit it to us. And he'll take our sin and rebellion and credit that to Christ. And Christ paid for that on the cross a long time ago. And so what he offers you is salvation through taking his merit and counting that to your account. And guys, if you've never done that, you need to do that. Now, I mentioned earlier that that Christ would tell people to count the cost of discipleship. And he did. He told a story about how, hey, if if you're about to fight a war... And there's a guy with a whole bunch of army, you know, a whole bunch of men and a big army. You better figure out if you've got enough people to go fight with him. Or if you're going to build a tower, you better count your money up because otherwise you'll lay a foundation 
And then you won't be able to build the tower and everybody will make fun of you. So God says, Jesus says, to count the cost of discipleship. And the cost is everything. You know, I, I, that friend, Mark, that I was talking about earlier, uh, he said that there was a, uh, a commercial back in the day about how you had to have two hands to handle a whopper. I don't know if y'all remember that. But the gospel is kind of like that. You've got to drop everything else if you're going to get your hands around that gospel. But it is free to us. It is inaccessible to us. But we have to lay everything else down and repent of our sins and grasp onto that gospel with both hands. Having talked to people who are members of this church and members for years, I know, guys, that there are folks who have trusted in their works. I hope um, that, that nobody in here is trusting in their works. But if you are, and if you realize, you know, I think I kind of was, you're going to be tempted to sit there when we sing because you don't want to come up front and, and let anybody know that maybe you got this wrong. Guys, that is such a silly consideration, okay? <laughs> Do not worry about that. Run up here and talk to me about this grace that God offers you. I'll be around afterward if you want to talk to me. Guys, I hope we're all solidly plugged into Christ. I hope we are forgiven and redeemed and clothed in Christ's righteousness. But if you're not, guys, the only thing that we would think if you came up here is praise God they've come. What are we going to sing, brother?